electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Those questions are due one week from today, Wednesday, June 29th. To Chair Powell, please submit your responses to these questions for the record for no more than 45 days from the day you receive them. Thank you again for your testimony. Committee's adjourned. Thank you. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, inflation rates, the economy, Fed Chair Powell wrapping up his testimony on Capitol Hill. So what is the next move for your money? We've got the investment committee waiting in the wings with their reaction. Joining us today, Shannon Sakosha, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, Michael Farr, and joining me here at the NASDAQ in-house, Bryn Talkington. Let's get a check on the markets on the back of Powell's testimony. Hanging into a very tight range for today, uh, but certainly uh, trying to stage a bounce off of yesterday's sell-off. The Dow is virtually flat, down about 10 points. The S&P 500 uh, is at 3765, up by just one point. The Nasdaq is higher by 12 points at this point. We've got a, a yield, um, yield curve coming down across the board, shall we say. An extraordinary move in the 10-year yield, down about 15 basis points from yesterday. We're at now 3.17 percent. We'll get to the committee in just a moment, but let's get uh, all the headlines from Fed Chair Powell's testimony with Elon Moy. Elon. Well, Melissa, Powell's goal here was to try to convince Congress that the Fed is resolved to fight inflation. But most of the hearing was spent outlining all the ways that the Fed lacks the power to do just that. You heard lawmakers from both sides of the aisle bring up oil markets, gas prices, food prices, Russia, China. And Powell acknowledged in each instance that the Fed does not control any of those factors, that monetary policy is a blunt instrument. All he can do is really try to slow down demand. Now, Democrats tried to use his answers to push the Fed on why they're continuing to raise rates if it's not going to help consumers where they're feeling those prices rise the most. Republicans, on the other hand, they tried to show that the Fed had lost control of inflation and actually should have started raising rates back at the end of last year. At one point, Powell was asked whether a recession could happen if the Fed moved too far too fast, and he answered that a recession is certainly a possibility. It's not the Fed's intended outcome, but it is an possibility. So the challenge here for Powell is not to convince the Congress and the public that the Fed wants to fight inflation, but that they actually have the right tools for the job. Melissa. All right, Elon Moy, thank you. And I guess that's uh, that's where the problem lies. <laughs> can the Fed actually accomplish that? The Fed may want to, but can it do that with monetary policy? Bryn, what do you make of the uh, testimony? What do you make of the market reaction? Well, the market reaction has been positive. It was right when he started speaking. I do think that the phrase of the meeting was the Fed has a blunt tool. It is, it is not a full toolkit. It is a very blunt tool to raise rates at the same time to start quantitative tightening, which you really have never seen those two come together when the economy is not only slowly s slowing, but if you look at the Atlanta Fed, now stalling. And so I think that investors need to understand 
We are in uncharted waters here. There is a wide range of outcomes that can happen in the economy, you know, over the next two quarters. And I think the markets are going to stay in this kind of purgatory until we get more clarity and on how, how fast the Fed's going to continue to tight and what actually happens with inflation. And to, and to Chairman Powell's point, he cannot print, print oil. He can't print food. He cannot actually do anything about the main causes of inflation. Uh, Powell also said he will not take any rate action off the table. The Fed will do what it needs to do. Jim Labenthal, how do you reconcile this sort of information vacuum on the part of, in, in the sense that we don't really know what the Fed is going to do? We're in a period where we haven't gotten, we haven't gotten to earnings season yet, so we don't have any guidance. We're, we're just in this sweet spot of, of, of vagary, <laughs> yeah, if you want to put I it mean, that way. I, I, I feel what you're saying, Melissa, and I and I feel what uh, Bryn just said about being in purgatory, because there's things that could move the market one way or the other, but they're three weeks away. And what are they? They're the reads on June inflation. We already know what May inflation is, and it's terrible. Uh, but it's going to be three weeks before we get the uh, figures for June CPI and PPI, and it's going to be three weeks until earnings start. On the latter, I, I would say that, you know, we all talk about where the multiple has gone. We're trading at 15 and a half times forward 12 months earnings on the S&P 500. But that earnings multiple, somebody like me, an optimist, may say it's low. I might be wrong if the earnings estimates are wrong. And, I, and that's a big question hanging over the markets. Earnings estimates have gone up all year. And a lot of people are looking at the analyst community and saying, what are you guys thinking? Like, really, what are you thinking? So that question is hanging there, can't be answered until we start to get a look at earnings, uh, which really are going to start in three weeks. So unfortunately, we're stuck right now. And there's skew to this, or, you know, to, to the multiple. I mean, you take a look at big cap tech, Shannon, and I know you do. Um, their multiples are higher than the market average. And, and maybe you can make the argument that they deserve the premium. But some might also say that that's, investors have to start selling those generals, so to speak, in order to believe that the market has actually found a floor. Well, we've seen a lot of pressure on those stocks, and that actually started way before um, the rest of the market went into a swoon at the beginning of the year. We go back to August and September. You were already starting to see uh, technical weakness in some of these names. And so I look at it in terms of what, you know, what are we saying? Are we saying there's going to be a recession this year or next year? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, but I know that we're going to enter into a period where we're probably going to go back to growth from a GDP perspective the way it was in 2017, 18, and 19, which is, you know, somewhere in the two to two and a half range. So if you think about that and you think about what is the potential catalyst for price appreciation in the stock market, I continue to go back to earnings growth. And I want to look at companies that are going to be able to grow both the top line and the bottom line. And I look at big cap tech and they need to prove me wrong from an execution standpoint that they can't continue to do that. We could talk about lower enterprise spend. We could talk about, you know, traditional cyclical spending from an uh, IT perspective. But I continue to look at the environment we're in from a, you know, hybrid perspective and the lack of investment that company that many companies made prior to the pandemic. And I still think that there are solid companies with huge moats in many parts of their businesses that are worth owning. Yes, they're more expensive. But I think to your question, Melissa, I think they do deserve that premium. And it has come down significantly. It has. It has granted. Um, but here's a theoretical question. I'll, I'll pose this to Michael Farr. He likes to uh, entertain my my games here. Um, Apple forward PE is 22 versus the market multiple of 15 and a half. Does it, is it worth that premium? 
there's still, I mean, if there are question marks over about the overall market, there are question marks about how China has impacted, there are question marks about supply chain, there are questions about how the supply chain may impact fulfilling North American demand, even if the North American demand is strong, those questions also apply to Apple. So at 22, does Apple deserve that or does that also need to have its multiple trimmed? I, I think, Melissa, it depends on the growth rate, and, and that's always it. And it's sort of what Shannon was saying. If you've got these strong growth rates that, that are still able to execute, then yes, uh, a higher growth rate deserves a higher price-to-earnings multiple. Will they continue to execute, and will they continue to be able to maintain their profitability the way they had before? When we're seeing higher input costs, will that affect the tech space? Clearly it will, but look at the discount we're getting versus where they were a year ago. So my answer uh, very uh, absolutely is it depends, but yes, I would be buying some of those names. I think that until Fed Powell, Chair Powell indicates that they are done or nearing the end of a rate hiking cycle, you don't know where the bottom in stocks is going to be. They're repricing money, and the price of money is a huge input cost in everybody's calculation. I think you've got to see analyst earnings estimates coming down towards the end of this year. This is a repricing, and you can't be rushed. We all want it over with. It's going to take time. And so I go back to my colleagues on the committee today and say, listen to them, because they're all saying some version of high quality and balance sheets, which makes a world of sense to me. Yeah. Joe, how, did, how do you feel walking out of the, uh, the Fed Chair Powell's testimony? you feel better or worse about the markets and where they're priced? I feel like listening to the job that they are so waiting on the world Obviously, we're having difficulty with Joe's feed. We could try and read lips, but we're not going to do that today. So, Bryn, <laughs> overall, I mean, Fed Chair Powell is trying to be reassuring. He's saying the risk of recession is not elevated. There still seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between what he is trying to telegraph and what the markets right now believe. Well, Bill Dudley had an op-ed yes. today. I think he would disagree with Chairman Powell, mm -hmm. first of all. And so, Bill Dudley, former New York Fed president, uh, is incredibly bright, and he's saying, no, we will have a recession, we'll probably have a hard landing. And so when I think it's important, talking about multiples, when I look back at the NASDAQ, which, which I own the Qs, right? I own tech stocks, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking about you know, stocks and, and securities that I own. Right now, we're, from a PE perspective, just going back to 2017 and 2018. The issue, though, that I'm trying to tackle is in 27 and 2018, we had similar multiples. You didn't have a hostile Fed. You had no inflation, very benign. And so now we have this scenario where I'm open to the fact that this time is different. And I mean different from the last 10 or 15 years in terms of inflation and interest rates. And so as an asset allocator, I think you just have to think that through. And that's what's really difficult right now because it's really not the earnings that matter. It's what multiple the market is willing to pay for those earnings, and that still has not even remotely been reconciled. I guess that's sort of the question that most investors are trying to grapple with right now, Shannon, as we do watch multiples come down, um, and that is, what, what is a benchmark for multiples at this point? You can say historic 16 and a half, roughly. That's the 10-year average. That's also the 20-year average with some variation on different time periods, but, you know, versus 16 and a half. But should we say that it should be 16, that the markets are undervalued because we're 15 and a half and the average is 16 and a half? I mean, it does matter what the context of that multiple is. 
Yeah, I think Bryn just, you know, nailed it in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, what does it mean this time? Because all of these time periods are different. And so if we go back and we look at, are we in a stagflationary environment? Are we setting up ourselves for lower growth, higher prices, and, you know, compressing opportunity from a labor market perspective? And so in each of those times when we're looking at multiple comparison, we also want to look at what is the multiple look at across the market? You just touched on it, Melissa. There's a big part of the market that's trading above that multiple, but it's not the wide swath of S&P 500 names. And so I think being able to get down, look at sectors and sub-industries that are outside of technology is really important. You can still express thematically your view that there needs to be innovation and growth in your portfolio. You might just need to find it in other places besides big tech if you're looking for those more attractive multiples. Joe Terranova has fixed the problems with his feed. So your thoughts, Joe, please. So I, I was saying that I feel like I should listen over and over again to the John Mayer song, Waiting on the World to Change, because <laughs> I think that's what we're all doing right now. Um, I, before we came on to the show, I was looking at my sheets. Um, two weeks ago, I made trades in Palo Alto Networks, CrowdStrike, and Generac. The trade in Generac looks like a banana that's been sitting out on the counter for six months right now. It looks awful. I sold some S&P futures on the morning of the inflation report, and I haven't done anything since. Haven't made a single trade since then, and I think that's indicative of the environment in which we're speaking towards right now. We have no clarity on earnings. We have no clarity on inflation. We have no clarity on the tariffs. Now, what we do have is an overwhelming amount of pessimism. And that's where potentially a trade opportunity exists, because Chairman Powell spoke a lot today about two things. First, he spoke about headline inflation. And then there was this subliminal message as it relates to fiscal policy. So we do have solutions for both of these things. And as it relates to headline inflation, let's inject some degree of optimism in what's an overwhelming pessimistic environment. And let's look at commodity pricing. And let's look at the fact that lumber which was 1477 in March is down to 620 today. Which look let's look at copper and wheat which are down 20% since their March highs. Natural gas 2 weeks ago was $9.66. It's 685 today. And the price of oil in the last 5 days is down 12%. Does that mean that the market has found a bottom? No. But it does mean that there's an opportunity, Melissa to kind of extract some of that overwhelming pessimism if we're going to get some relief in the commodity sector, mm -hmm. which is really where the challenge for inflation resides itself. There are two sides to the coin, though, and that is that commodity prices are coming down, and I guess oil specifically because there is a greater fear of recession, Jim Labenthal. So you can try and be yeah. out. You can put the pessimistic spin on the optimistic data point that Joe's put forth, and I'm wondering where you, where you stand on that. I mean, Bill Dudley... He, you know, he came out with that Bloomberg opinion piece, what, a month ago when he said that the, that the side effect, basically, what the Fed is going to do is going to be a market that moves sharply lower. We saw that. Today he's coming out and saying recession is inevitable in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, where do yeah, you stand I mean, here? 
Well, I stand with Joe, um, and that's not going to surprise anyone. Um, I, I think what's been going on here is that you've had for quite some time an overwhelming focus on the negative. And what that does is not just bringing the market down, but it ignores some of the positives that are out there. So, look, sure, Mr. Dudley is a very smart man. Uh, he was at Goldman Sachs when I was there, and I respect him a lot. But there's a lot of other people who I respect who say a recession is not inevitable, and if it is, it, it, it might be a job plentiful recession when you look at how many job openings there are. But there's one point I really would want to make on the positive side of the ledger, and that's cash balances. You've got you know, Jamie Dimon and, and Brian Moynihan, heads of J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, respectively, saying that the consumer balance sheet is in pretty good shape and can withstand this inflation for a while. The other thing that I would point out is corporate balance sheets, which we know have been flush with cash as well. And frankly, you're seeing that in share buybacks. Um, the steel companies pre-announced last week with pretty sizable buybacks going on. Winnebago, small cap company, I know that, but it, it uh, released its earnings today. Blowout earnings, by the way, for a recreational uh, vehicle uh, manufacturer, and they're buying back shares. Now, it's not going to necessarily be ubiquitous, but for a long-term investor, what I see, and I'm quoting from Warren Buffett here, is that my share of the earnings power going forward of companies is going to be concentrated as they use that sh that cash to buy back shares. So the balance sheets are a positive that can't be overlooked here. Let's get to some moves that the uh, investment committee is making. Michael Farr, you have trimmed Alphabet. You bought Amazon for the firm for the first time. So I'm wondering why these moves? I think this is a market, of course, where you follow your discipline. You know, the, the two foes of the long-term investor are emotion and hubris. Um, one starting to get carried away by either fear or ebullience. And then the, the second, which is probably the most dangerous, is really believing that you really know what's going to happen next. I assure you, 35 years later, I don't know. Uh, so I follow my discipline and my numbers. My uh, Google Alphabet got to be a very large position over the years. It had a great year last year. We trimmed the position. We still have a position in, in Alphabet. And we added uh, Amazon. I've, I've liked the company for a long time, but it finally, down 45% off its highs, is in a range where I can uh, comfortably buy it. I think the cloud business and the advertising business are fabulous. I think the commerce business is still buying market share and not fabulous. But we look at it on an enterprise value to EBITDA at 14 times. That's as cheap as it's traded in a long time. So we established a position there. So uh, I, I sell things when they get to be too large and too expensive. I try to add positions when I can be opportunistic. And I try to keep my arrogance out of the way and say, it could still go lower. I could still buy more later. But at these levels and prices, my discipline says, ignore the emotion, follow the discipline, and let's take the position. Shannon, you own Amazon. Have you uh, added your position recently? No, Melissa, we actually came into this year with Amazon, one of our highest conviction and therefore highest weight uh, stocks. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't agree more with the assessment, I think, on a longer term basis. And there may be another opportunity for us to even add to the position, given that it is still an under overweight in our position, in our portfolio. But I think if you look at it and you just try to value, you take out AWS um, just from, you know, as a standalone business and the value for Amazon is there. And, and so I think, if again, if, whether it's Amazon or Microsoft or even a 
company like Salesforce, just looking out next three, five, seven years, I don't see how you don't see opportunity in those names, even if you're not trying to time a specific buy at the lowest value of these stocks in the next couple of weeks. I still think it's a great time to start a position just as Michael has. Joe, I want to ask you about the, uh, what, how, what did you call it, the wilting banana? Brown banana, mushy banana, Generac. <laughs> Generac is getting creamed today. I mean, Spruce Point Capital out with, uh, you know, a note basically saying that they see 40 to 50 percent downside on this names for various re- reasons. They also want the CEO to resign because they think he's just unfit to lead. Um, what do you think of that? And, and are you holding on firm? So I, I am holding on uh, for a little bit longer here. I mean, there's not much I can say in my defense other than then sometimes you're going to be making trades, and I'm looking at it as a as you're, you're speaking about it, but sometimes you're going to be making trades that are going to be lousy ones. It's going to look, like I said, like the banana that's sitting out on the counter for <laughs> the last six weeks. Um, you put it in a portfolio. There are other things in my portfolio that have been strong winners and that kind of softens the decline. But I think looking at the individual Generac stock itself, it was an awful purchase. It's been followed by some awful news. And there will come a point in the near future where I will cut my loss on the stock if it continues to decline in the way that it is. All right. Check out this mystery chart. It is a semiconductor stock that is down 40% this year, but a bullish new call says it could rally double digits from here. We'll reveal the name and debate that call next. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We showed you a mystery chart before the break. It's AMD. Morgan Stanley resuming its overweight rating on AMD. The firm thinks it could rise more than 20 percent from here, despite semiconductor industry struggles, as our call of the day. Shannon and Joe, you both own it. The call was interesting, Shannon. It was mostly the pullback plus strength in the server business. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if we look at AMD, we actually made this purchase about mid-May. So we're down from our original buy, um, you know, 10, 12 percent or so. Um, but we were looking at both the valuation and the opportunity to gain market share. And so thinking about it in terms of um, PCs, obviously they have a manufacturing advantage over Intel. Intel's probably at least one year, if not three years behind them in, in terms of manufacturing and, and kind of the new chip cycle. But being able to infiltrate servers, as well as the PC space, NVIDIA obviously has the corner on gaming, um, but AMD is right there. And so I think from a valuation perspective, even with the headwinds of potentially some oversupply concerns going into next year, uh, we think the valuation is really compelling in the stock right now. Joe? Look, you could think that semiconductors as, a, as an overall industry for the next two years are not going anywhere. And if you're of that belief, then you don't own any semiconductors at all. If you actually believe that there's an opportunity for semiconductors, which will be highly correlated to a market recovery, if you see that opportunity, if you think markets potentially have the chance to recover, you want to own semis. And if you want to own semis, then you want to own a name like AMD or NVIDIA. I choose to own AMD. I own AMD for the valuation. I own AMD for the nearly $10 billion buyback. I own AMD for the excellent management because I don't think that semiconductors and as an industry are are. are uninvestable for the next two years. I think there will be a recovery at some point. I think they are faced with tremendous headwinds and geographic challenges, specifically in Asia. But there will be a moment of recovery, and you want to have some exposure to the industry. And AMD, to me, this is the way to do it. Bryn, you've been looking at this one? I have. I own NVIDIA. And I've, I'm a big believer in it. I think this is like one of those really interesting times in the market because there's so many stocks down 40, 50 percent. Mm -hmm. NVIDIA and AMD are down really almost the same year to date. And so it's like I'm watching AMD, I think, from a CEO, from a management. NVIDIA and AMD are best in class. And so I'm watching this. And we'll see. I mean, I think we're going to continue to once again be in this market purgatory. And you're going to get wonderful opportunities to pick up great companies like an NVIDIA if you don't own it or an advanced micro devices, because these companies will have very, very long runways over the next five and 10 years. Michael, why do you not own any semiconductors? You know, uh, I think we're still in a declining economy. I think it's a commodity, uh, the semiconductor chips. Uh, you, I think you still have to get the timing right. And there are other places I'd rather put my money where I think the earnings will grow more reliably and more strongly over time. So, no, uh, you have to buy, I think, time the purchase and sale decision here. So it's not the kind of investing that I do. It works for others, just not for me. Yeah, everybody else here on this uh, IC panel today has got some semi-exposure. Laventhal, you're still in Qualcomm? Still in Qualcomm and also NXP Semiconductors, also NVIDIA. So mm -hmm. I agree. I think it was Joe who said, you know, pick your poison. Might have been somebody else between NVIDIA and AMD. Those are amongst the higher growing but also higher price names, which is why I also like Qualcomm and NXP at these remarkable valuations. But I also want to riff on what's being said here about the cycle. I think the cycle is likely to be very long, the economic cycle, because of these powerful forces of supply chain onshoring and infrastructure spending, neither of which are likely to get upended if the Fed funds rate goes to three and a half percent. There is just a wave of factory and mine building and construction going on, not just in this country, but in Europe as well. 
all of which is going to place demand on the 21st century cyclical, which is semiconductors. All right. Let's get the news headlines with Contessa Brewer. Contessa. Hi there, Melissa. Hello, everybody. President Biden plans to ask Congress to suspend the federal gas tax for three months. That could save drivers about 18 cents per gallon of gasoline and 24 cents per gallon of diesel if energy companies pass along the reductions. But the proposal will have a difficult time passing on Capitol Hill. A lot of Republicans already are complaining it's just a temporary fix, that it would deprive the government of money it needs to build and maintain highways. A major earthquake has hit Afghanistan, killing 1,000 people and wounding at least 1,500. The 5.9 magnitude earthquake struck southeast of coast near the country's shared border with neighboring Pakistan. The earthquake is one of the deadliest Afghanistan has experienced in decades. A bipartisan agreement has been reached over new gun laws after 10 Republicans agreed to side with Democrats. This proposal would increase background checks on gun buyers younger than 21. It would give money to the states to implement red flag laws, and it would fund mental health services, among other provisions. The House is expected to vote later this week on that bill. Melissa? Contessa, thank you. Contessa mm -hmm. Brewer. Straight ahead, the ETFs to watch amid the volatility. And before the break, a check on the markets right now. Barely in the green here with uh, the Russell 2000 just down slightly. We will be right back. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm your host, Leslie Picker, in for Bob Pisani. The market expected to remain choppy in the coming weeks, and it, and it seems many ETF investors are shifting to a paid-to-wait strategy until the volatility clears. Joining me now is Matt Bartolini, State Street Head of Spider America Research. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Um, there was a new city note out that is urging investors who are worried about a recession to buy dividend ETFs or buy dividend stocks. So what are the flows telling you about investors' preference to be a little bit more defensive right now? Yeah, I mean, that has just been the trend. So, so far this year, you've seen over $40 billion of flows into dividend-related ETFs. That's basically 
of all smart beta related ETF flows. And I think what investors are looking for is a bit of that yield protection in a declining market because it is a return of shareholder value. So investors are seeking out those dividend strategies. It is a combination of both value and quality. And I think that's one of those type of solutions in a choppy market like this that investors may continue to consider as you know the volatility is unlikely to abate uh, over the next coming weeks, months. Are there specific dividend ETFs that you'd recommend at this stage? So, I mean, I think within our suite, you know, we have two different varieties. You know, we have one that's mainly focused on yield with the SPYD as some of the highest dividend yielders. It's going to have much more of a value bias than a quality bias, but you can still get some form of a quality uptick because it's mainly only S&P 500 names. The other one is SDY. It focuses on companies that have increased their dividend for 20 consecutive years. So a very rigorous approach. You get that value bias, but you get some quality overlay because those companies have seen a couple different market cycles and have been able to return shareholder value over many, many years, not just 20, in some cases over 50 consecutive years. But these, these types of ETFs are usually favorites of value investors, but given the flows and given the run-ups recently, are they still a value play? Yes, they definitely are. I mean, that's the interesting thing about value. Value has been really a, a poor performing factor over the last five, six years leading up to this year, and now it's having a bit of a renaissance. And so even though it's up or actually you know, outperforming the market, it's still down, uh, but it's having a strong performance. On a relative basis, value is still inexpensive relative to the broader market as well as the growth stocks. So there's still value in value, and we actually like emphasizing high-quality value stocks in the core, just given the volatility, given the fundamental uh, underpinnings of sort of softening growth. I think that's the type of strategy that investors are going to continue to look for, and that's why we see dividend strategies, a blend of that value and quality bias, continue to be allocated to throughout 2022. Value in the eye of the beholder, but increasingly popular in the current environment. Matt, thank you very much. Much more on dividend and value ETFs coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern. Matt will be joined by Walkbeth Capital Managing Director Andrew McDormand. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime Report returns after this. the halftime report let's bring in our market headliner chris heisey is the chief investment officer at merrill and bank of america private bank he joins us now chris great to see you great to see you melissa you know i was reading over the notes chris and and you you think that pe contraction is mostly done we're at 15 and a half right now but the entry point for the markets you see the next one or the first one being in six to nine months why not now if that contraction is largely over well there's a few things to consider here i know that there's a huge focus on whether or not we're going into recession or not I think uh, the bigger focus should be more more or less on the magnitude of potential earnings decline. So if you think about the next six to nine months, there's three episodes that investors should be watching. First one is right now. Uh, So to your point, in between the June Fed meeting and the July Fed meeting, we're going to get a good look on what corporate earnings are going to be on a forward guidance basis for the third quarter. We're going to get the second quarter announcements coming out. Companies will likely take this as an opportunity um, to, to... discuss the strong dollar, the higher labor costs, the higher input costs, et cetera, and then start to reset earnings. So we think that that's your first entry point for investors who are now underweight equities or neutral for the long haul. Start to think about adding to equities at that point. The second entry point quickly, uh, somewhere around the fall, that's just after Jackson Hole in August, and that's up ahead of the potential reset to earnings for all of 2023. 
And then the last one, we think, uh, just on a timing basis, is more or less in the spring of 23, when the Fed could basically say, we're done. What I think is interesting about what you said, Chris, is that you made clear that this advice in terms of the entry point is specifically for investors who are underweight equities. What if you're fully allocated to equities? What's your, you know, what's your path then? Yeah, fully allocated investors right now uh, hopefully are playing defense, uh, are more diversified than they have been in the prior cycle, are getting ready for a whole new regime that we're just beginning, which is a real asset appreciation, starting with energy and other commodities that may be actually uh, a little bit painful from last week, but certainly that's an entry point. So if you're fully allocated right now uh, on a sector basis, you want to play both defense and offense. On the defensive side, healthcare a little bit as it relates to some of the more defensive technology names for the long haul, and then ultimately utilities, which will provide you some dividends. And then on the offensive side, in the real asset spectrum of energy, take the opportunity when you see weakness in energy, sizable free cash flow rising, uh, buybacks happening, raising dividends, capital discipline, and it's just the beginning of that story. Chris, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, on something specific that the Fed chair said during the testimony. He was asked specifically whether the Fed would raise by 100 basis points in one full swoop. And he said that he would not take any rate action off the table. And th this seems much more aggressive in terms of even entertaining that idea of, of one full percentage point higher. And what does that do if that happens to, to your outlook for stocks? Does it change anything? It, it really doesn't. Um, the most powerful tool that the Fed has and is now uh, more realizing is the fact that forward guidance is extremely powerful. It dictates what goes on, not just technically in the front end of the curve, but across the curve and obviously consumer rates. Uh, the Federal Reserve is now realizing that forward guidance is a tool that wasn't in prior cycles as much as it is now. So not taking any type of hikes off the table in terms of the magnitude of the hike is a smart move. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, they have told us explicitly and more recently, they're going to remain vigilant to create price stability. Without price stability, economic activity uh, is very difficult, number one. Number two, you cannot plan as a company or as an investor. So it really doesn't change our outlook. Our outlook right now, we believe we're in limbo. We're in the bridge period. We're in the third to fourth stage of a cyclical bear market with earnings deterioration yet to come and then ultimately stability around the corner after the Fed says we're done. Joe, you got a question? I do. Chris, good to see you this afternoon. Buyback authorizations were running well above the pace for 2021's record year. You're talking about earnings deterioration. What do you think the buyback intentions will be looking forward in that environment from the C-suite? Well, we think they're only going to go higher, Joe. It's a good point that you're bringing up because you can only raise your dividend so much, uh, particularly in areas where your capital discipline has been so stark. Um, think about what's going on in capital structures across most of the corporate industries that did not participate in the last move up, the last cycle. You're starting to see that come through. We know where that is. That's in the material sector. Some parts of the super stable, but also energy. Uh, stock buyback, for the most part, was mostly in tech land for many, many years. It was in some other areas, but you're going to more or less see that across the board now. We expect growth in stock buyback, capital structure discipline. But but here's another point, Joe, and I know you've talked about this uh, for, for many months, if not years. 
Capital discipline ultimately shifts to capital investment. The number one thing companies will need to do uh, to combat higher uh, above average levels of inflation for the longer haul, or at least medium term, and low labor supply is automation. Automation, not just at the back end, but at the front end and across the entire process of whatever company you're talking about. The increase in automation is ultimately going to be a word that we're going to hear about heard some of it but hear about for the next decade and that is the hallmark we believe of the next cycle. Chris thanks for your time good to see you. Thank you guys. Chris Heisey. Up next more moves from the investment committee plus all June we are celebrating pride month here's Susie Scher Goldman Sachs partner. My advice to the LGBT community is to be out at work. When I first came out at Goldman Sachs in 2000, on the eve of the birth of my first child, and I now have four, I had no idea how being in the closet was preventing me from connecting with my colleagues and my clients. Authenticity is an important part of your brand, so come out and be out. Brand is making some moves in energy. You're actually selling. Yeah, right? Melissa. Well, you know, last Monday, mm-hmm. I talked about this with, with Scott last Monday. We actually, you know, sold XLE, which had been, you know, really our biggest energy exposure in the public markets. And I think twofold, we're still very constructive on the space. But when you look at a chart on energy, especially the last year and a half, it was a little parabolic when, when you look there. And so we wanted to take some of those profits because also, Last Monday, you had a 70% delta between energy's outperformance and the S&P, and we just felt that wasn't sustainable. But I still own XOP, Devon, Viper, Blackstone. I think for investors that own energy right now, especially with Devon and and XOP, that call premium is really elevated because you've had this big downturn recently. And so you can sell some calls, capture some nice premium while that volatility in energy is picking up. Because I do think that the narrative shifts right now as we think less about or equally about inflation as recession. Clearly, commodities are going to continue to be under pressure even though there's a big there's a supply demand imbalance. So I think those covered call strategies will be a good strategy to have extra income while those prices, I think, are really just kind of range bound until we get more clarity going forward. All right. Tonight on CNBC, do not miss the premiere of ExxonMobil at the crossroads. David Faber gets an exclusive inside look into the company. Here's David speaking with board member Jeff Ubbin and CEO Darren Woods on the balance of pleasing shareholders while transitioning the company toward a carbon free future. What would change the conversation that you're having with those shareholders? Maralaga goes underwater. Palm Beach is gone. I mean, I, I'm, 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 not, I'm serious. These guys need to be punched in the face. This is, these are money guys. They're, you know, they have... All right, you're not making me feel optimistic, though. No. 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 You've got to find the, the angle of attack, so to speak, that gives you an advantage, that allows you to generate a return while meeting these other objectives. That's been the journey we've been on. That's been the work that I've done for the five years here in reshaping the organization because I recognize I got to do both. I don't have the luxury of picking this or that. Again, do not miss ExxonMobil at the crossroads tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. A big interview coming up on Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Jim Cramer will sit down with Meta's Mark Zuckerberg to talk about his $10 billion bet on the metaverse. Meta shares down almost 60% from its highs. We will trade it next on Halftime. 
Tonight on Mad Money, do not miss Jim Cramer's exclusive interview with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. That's 6 p.m. Eastern time. This is a company tries to drum up support for its $10 billion metaverse bet. Shares have been one of the big tech underperformers uh, this year, past 12 months, too, falling more than 50 percent so far. Bryn, Shannon and Michael, you all own it. Shannon, I will start off with you. Why do you still hold on to this one? The, the company has executed over the last several years in terms of being able to monetize its user base. And I think that that is the one thing that we haven't seen from other companies such as Twitter. Uh, I think the challenge with Facebook continues to be this overhang in terms of sentiment about owning the company um, and whether or not you really want to play in the space of social media overall. For us, uh, you know, I was asked on this show uh, if I would buy more immediately after the earnings report. And I said, absolutely not. I thought it could be down another 10 to 15 percent. And it's down a lot more than that. Um, I think that it's in the penalty box for the next several quarters. But, but as I look out over the next several years, I do think that they're going to be able to pivot uh, to being able to grow the Web 3.0 space. And if anyone can do it, it's this company. They have the user base and they have the chassis to build upon. Why, what is, Michael, I'll ask you this as a shareholder, because part of owning Meta is believing uh, the company's vision of the metaverse. What what is it? What what is it? Do you what? How do you think the company is going to monetize this? How do you think about how that is going to be revenue stream for this company? Well, they've they've monetized right their online presence and everybody else's news and information, and of course through advertising and eyeballs. When they have a big enough audience, they're able to monetize it, and advertising has been a huge driver. They've also made a shift over to reels. So with the metaverse, if it can be the vision that Zuckerberg is describing, there are a lot of different ways and more ways they can monetize it. Uh, I, I think than than they have been even their current platform. I don't think it's a good trade. I think it's probably a good investment at 13 times earnings. They've discounted a lot of bad news. Can they take this huge user base and actually figure out what to do next? Yeah, I think they probably can, but you probably need to give them at least the opportunity and some time to figure this out. Down 53 percent is not a time I'd be selling it. Yeah, it's down 18 percent over the past month versus the S&P 500, which is down, or the Nasdaq 100, which is down 2%, so clearly an underperformer, even yeah. in a more recent time frame. Brynn, this really sounds like a leap of faith kind of stock at this point. If you're betting on Mark Zuckerberg's bet on the metaverse, and we don't really know what form that's going to be, you're basically saying, I believe you. Yeah, but they own Oculus, right? And so, I mean, from a device perspective, they, they, they have Oculus. And also, look at Microsoft reinvented themselves with the cloud. Like, who would have, if you would have explained the cloud to someone when they were just starting, we all wouldn't have really understood that. So I'm open to the idea that they actually can reinvent themselves. At the same time, you have both the value and the growth managers that can both traffic in this space. So I own a tiny bit of shares. I just bought it, and I think I'm down 18% since I just bought it. Right. But I do think it's an interesting story. and I would never, never count out Mark Zuckerberg. He invented the social media space. Why can't he capitalize on this next? Right. Final trades up next. Final trades. And Michael, you're adding to one of your positions. 
Uh, Melissa, I'm adding to Disney. The share price is now where it was when the theme parks were closed in the middle of the pandemic. That's excluding the streaming business about 12, 13 times earnings. They're in 80 countries now in streaming. They're going to go in 80 more. The theme parks are packed. I like this company. According to my discipline, I have to buy them when they're down if the business is still intact. Bryn? As the potential for the economy to slow and, and possibly stall, um, healthcare is traditionally one of the best performing sectors relative, and so I have XLV. Shannon. I'm going to double down on Michael's trade from earlier. Uh, Amazon, if you don't own a position now, you're going to want to. Just look at AWS. You don't even need to look at the commerce side. Joseph. We have a lot of students that are graduating from school. Congratulations. Let's say for the first time they're looking at the market and want to buy their first stock. I would tell them to look at Microsoft. Jim Leventhal. In this ongoing discussion amongst many of us about being in purgatory, CVS is a defensive name with a good dividend yield rate. All right. I will see you tonight at 5 on Fast Money. That does it for us here in a halftime. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.